Hi, this is Mark from Chakra, and you listen to Focus on Metal. Hey, Metalheads, Scott Thompson here, welcoming you to this week's dose of Focus on Metal. If you missed it, last week's show, we had a great interview with Todd Latore from uh, Queensryche, talking all about his new solo release, Rejoice in the Suffering. So if you missed that, you might want to go back to last week's episode and check that out. And you can, of course, find that on iTunes or over on focusonmetal.net and right below the graphic for that episode you should also find a link if you want to go over and buy that album right from Rat Pack Records and also last week a lot of discussion really the first discussion that Richie and I have had this year since coming back on break so uh, like I said ton of discussion as well as a great interview with Todd Latore. If you did catch last week's episode, then you know that uh, this week we are due to talk to author Joel Miller, and we're talking to him about his book, Memoir of a Roadie, and that book came out back in actually August of uh, 2020, 420 pages, talking all about Joel's time with uh, working with the Cranberries and Stone Temple Pilots and Poison, and uh, probably the big marquee name on the book is uh, Guns N' Roses. In fact, right on the front cover of the book, it even says, Axel said, I made a great cup of tea. A little bit of the story behind that quote on uh, this week's discussion with uh, Joel as well. And if you did listen to last week's episode, you heard Richie talking about, you know, wanting to get Joel on because we never really had a roadie on the show before. And we do uh, discuss a little bit about we do have a uh, another interview with a roadie from uh, way back that has never been aired. And at some point, I'll probably repair the audio on that and roll that out because that's a guy who was working with a lot of classic bands, has some great stories, really would love to get that one out to you guys. But then I'm also thinking, uh, wait a minute, uh, like you got a roadie on the show Every week, so I don't know if uh, Richie doesn't consider working local crew for a long time as a roadie, but I know that I definitely uh, put in a lot of time lugging amps and giant bass bins and lighting arrays and all kinds of crap. In fact, I can even remember back in the day with uh, the company that I was subcontracting to that uh, if any of you remember one of the uh, Boston tours where they went and... uh, all the lighting rig was all painted gold. Well, we did that. Came in all black, painted every piece of lighting equipment gold, went out on that tour. When it came back, we had to repaint it all again black. So I'm thinking uh, even though I don't qualify as one of the uh, the long-haul traveling roadies, I did, in fact, work at a lot of venues for a lot of different bands, doing uh, local crew stuff all the way up to Maine, all the way down into Connecticut. But uh, yeah, I definitely wasn't living the life of sleeping on a tour bus. Didn't do that. But anyways, that's what we have in store for you this week is a great discussion with Richie and Joel Miller all about his time. You know, how did he get to be a roadie? 
and a lot of the great stories being out there with the bands, relationships with people in the bands, all that good stuff. And then also, you know, Richie's talking about what he's been doing since then. And, you know, as he looks back, how does he feel about all that as well? Great read. Hopefully, after hearing from Joel, you're going to want to go out and pick that up. It is available on Amazon, and I'm sure it's available in a lot of other places as well. But for now, why don't we dive in with uh, Richie and author, former roadie, Joel Miller. Hello. Can we to Joel Miller, please? Yeah, it's me. How are you doing? Hey, it's Richie. How are you doing, Joel? I'm well. I'm well. And you? I'm okay. So so where are you based? Where are you? Well, I'm in... Um, so I, I'm, I live in... Well, I live in L.A. In the, do you know the San Fernando Valley? Do you know L.A. at all? Yeah, a little bit. All right. So I'm up in the valley... But right now I'm up in a place called Big Bear. So Big Bear is two and a half hours away from L.A. It's a ski resort. Okay. Okay. It's nice. Nice, yeah. I'm just outside of Boston. Oh, okay. Sure thing. Yeah. Uh, I like Boston. Yeah, I'm originally from Ireland. I can tell. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I can tell. Yeah. I won't hold it against you. No. <laughs> <laughs> I got some Irish buddies, and so we... Uh, we have a good time. I was born in England, so yeah. I don't know. I guess you know that already, but nonetheless. Yeah, and you toured with the Cranberries. I did tour with the Cranberries. Yeah. And I spent a lot of time with a lot of Irish people because of it. Yeah, yeah. They're, they like a drink. They like to drink. You know, it's, um, you know, I asked them at one time, I said, did you guys ever tour with you too? And, she, and Dolores, she said to me, she goes, well, no. She's like, you know, we're both... We were both really big acts, always. So no, we we never we never did a show together. Yeah, and, and I was like, wow. Yeah, and they're from a different part of Ireland as well. You two are from Dublin, and I think they were from Limerick. She was from Limerick. Yeah, actually, I don't know about the rest of the guys, but she was definitely Limerick. But yeah, I wonder. Uh, I just thought maybe back in the day, I, I didn't realize the cranberries were as big as they were. Because in the United States, their ticket sales were kind of eh, and I didn't realize they were that huge. Oh, no, so she told me that, I was like, yeah, right. And oh, then I, um, when we were in Mexico City, I was like, oh, shit, you guys are fucking massive. Yeah, other, back in Ireland and England, they were huge. Huge. I, I didn't know. I didn't know. Because in the U.S., dude, it was bad. They were they were not selling a lot of tickets for the shows. What were they, a club act? No, we were bigger in clubs. We were doing sheds. But I guarantee you, their next tour would have been clubs. Because... Uh, they weren't selling out those sheds, man. They were not doing well in yeah. general. Yeah. So, Joel, have you done a lot of interviews for the book? Oh, God, yeah. You have? Well, I shouldn't say, oh, God, yeah. Yeah, I have, yeah. It's a good thing. Okay. I'm not I'm not going to spend two hours talking about taping off the stage and all that sort. No, that's why, because I was, you know, it's funny. After you write, you're like, I sound like such a pretentious little shithead. <laughs> I don't want to talk to you for very long. But my friend wrote Poltergeist, and he told me, Tell him a half hour. I'm like, why? He goes, because anything after 20 minutes is boring, and you sound like an asshole. I'm like, oh, really? He goes, trust me, I've been doing this a lot of years. Then every now and then, though, I'll go a bit longer because the people are cool. But yeah, the tape guy, I mean, so what kind of color tape do you choose? I'm kind of like, do you uh, really? I mean, who, who cares, really? I, I mean, I'm... Uh, I'm uh, Whatever they order, <laughs> it was funny. <laughs> yeah. And then a lot of these ones, you know, you're you're doing an interview for for that guy, his wife, and his mom. You know, I'm like, are we really? <sighs> okay, let's see. So yeah. I don't know, <laughs> but honestly, most of them have been pretty cool. Actually, the the best one, I think, they were Irish. 
they were uh, they were kids, man. They were like twenty years old, and uh, they asked me some awesome questions. They were they were really good. I'm like that's a good one, dude. Let me think about that. I like that one. <laughs> okay. Uh, okay, I, I should have contacted them to get the questions off them then. <laughs> <laughs> no, nah, I wouldn't. I wouldn't make it that easy for you. Give <laughs> um, you a hard time. Yeah. So, so Joel, why do the book now? Because you gave up the roadie life a long time ago. What, 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 what made it right now to do the book? So what happened was, uh, my friend Michael wrote the film Poltergeist, and at one point I was working with him or uh, attempting to make a career out of film and have him uh, do some projects with him. And he always said, you should really write about your, your story. And I don't know why, but I just didn't want to. Well, I started going through some journal notes and I, I read like a story and I'm like, man, that's, that's great. I forgot about that. That's cool. And if you think about, it, I don't know how old you are, but you know, I'm 43. So at 40 years old, when you're reading it about yourself at 20 years old, it's interesting. You, you've got things that you forgot. You've got things you remember. You've got things that were these major cataclysmic events that you don't even know who the hell you're talking about now. <laughs> you, you have no recollection of, of who this girl was that changed your whole life or whatever. So I started doing it for a bit of fun. About a year ago, a little longer, I got melanoma. And I was like, oh, crap, you know, if I pop off, my nephews are going to think I was some dumbass. <laughs> so I'm like, I better finish my book. So I started really hankering down to try and finish it so that my nephews would think I was okay. And I'm okay. I'm not going to die. But nonetheless, I got a little worried because things happen and you realize you're not a Marvel character. You're just some dude. Yeah. Um, writing the book, you would have gone in probably had expectations about how easy or how hard it would be to do it. Um, was it harder to write than you thought, or did it end up being easier to write? A lot harder. Yeah, a lot harder because... So I've, I started writing screenplays, and just because you're writing doesn't mean they're good. My screenplays suck. But I started writing screenplays, and you can go through and you can focus on a particular character and just try and refine that until you feel comfortable. With a book, it's just too massive of a project. Every single rewrite can take a year, so it's just this ma it's this really large undertaking um, that was bigger than I thought. I told Michael that to write a shitty screenplay is hard, but to write a shitty book is really, really, really hard. <laughs> and he was like, that's why I haven't done it. So it was tough. I'm doing an audio book now. I'm almost done. thought that would be super fun. It's not. It was incredibly difficult. And so they're learning lessons, but the, the, the real, the tough part is, is just the, the, how large the project is. And then of course I wrote what a reporter guy called the tome of the roadie. So 500 plus pages is maybe a, it's a lot. <laughs> yeah. A lot. Well, Cause when I contacted you and about coming on and doing the interview, and then I looked on, on Amazon and it was 500 pages. I was like, Holy fuck. 500 pages. What's this guy got to talk about? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> How exactly. long did you hang out with Dolores, my friend? You know, what did you guys do? <laughs> How many pages can you talk about tequila in Mexico? <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. I, I have to ask, though, did you keep diaries? Because you're pretty specific yeah. about specific dates throughout the book. Absolutely, yeah. So I had bought um, 
So I'm on tour with STP. We go home for the first break. I got a few pennies in my pocket from per diem. And so I bought a laptop computer. Well, that was just when AOL chat rooms were getting going. So I could get in there and I could chat to people. I actually got into an, AOL, an AOL STP chat room. I'm like, no, I'm, I'm on tour with the band right now. I'm, I'm here. And people are like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm like, no, for real. <laughs> so it was a bit of fun. But I was trying to think, what could I do with my new toy? And it was a lot of money for me, really a lot of money. And so I started just writing a journal about what happened every day. And I'd write the date on the top of the journal because that's what you're supposed to do. And uh, that's what I went back to read year, all these years later. And I was like, oh, God, that's hilarious. That's so fun. And then and I just started writing out my little story. And I wanted to focus on humor rather than, uh, yeah, you know, nasty sex stories with chicks and stuff. Yeah, yeah. Um, did you, When you were reading back your, your entries and you were reliving a lot of that stuff, um, there's a lot of alcohol and drugs in, in the book, right? Did, yeah. you, did you contact any of the guys you used to work for before you wrote it and said, listen, did it actually go down that way? Can you remember? A few of the people, yeah. A few of the people for sure. So the, the characters, though, some of them are meshes of, of a few different people and whatnot. I mean, it is a book, so it's not, it, it's not a verbatim story. But um, I did reach out, and, and what was really interesting to me as just a writer was the way that people do remember stories. So, um, for example, I talk about one of the characters in the book. His name is Nigel, uh -huh. and he had a, uh, a hearse. And then when I was talking to, to the, one of these guys, and he said to me, he goes, I didn't have just a hearse. I had a 1954 hearse, the biggest hearse ever made. You know, and those are the kind of things that can make a story so much more interesting to read is the, is the little itty bitty things that other people remembered and not me. And, uh, and so, yes, I did. I spoke to, I spoke to quite a few people that, Hey, do you remember this? Do you remember that? Or, hmm. you know, and then they would tell me stuff, uh, that one guy, his, name, his name's Frank. So Frank is really Frank. And Frank, uh, he told me, you remember I called your father, Mr. Rifkin. I'm like, oh, no, I didn't know that. No, he's like, yeah, I called him Mr. Rifkin. He's like, what the hell are you talking about? So nah, little things can make a story more realistic. Hmm. Were, were a lot of the guys you reached out to still roadies? Yeah. They, they, yeah. they stuck with it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. For the most part, I think everybody, yeah. Yeah. What sort of person do you need to be to have a career as a roadie? Independent and tough. Um, you know, I, I say it's synonymous with prison, but it's a little bit negative. So the truth is, though, is, is you spend a lot of time by yourself. You have to be very, you actually have to be pretty smart, believe it or not. But the jobs aren't that easy, and there's a lot at stake. If you make a boo-boo, which I try to go over again and again, somebody could get hurt badly. Um, there's no such thing as a person, a roadie, who doesn't really need to be there, who's just loafing around. It's not like a lot of quote-unquote regular jobs where the guy in the office you think does nothing and you do all the work. It doesn't really work that way. Um, there's not enough people there. If you're not, if you're not working, it's obvious, and they get rid of you very quickly. So you got to be tough. you got to really like what you're doing, I think, because it's so hard. And then... Um, you got to, I think, not mind being by yourself quite a bit of the time because it's a very independent type thing. Yeah, Joel, but in the beginning, you say in the book that 
you're thrust into this life as a roadie and no one actually told you what to do. And yet you have to be yeah. seen as, as someone who's working. That kind of contradicts itself. You know, you're, you don't know what you're doing and yet you, you, you want people to see you doing something. See, yeah, so the first thing to learn is how to do nothing but look like you do. <laughs> it's, it's a very important trait. And you got it. I mean, you know, being on English, it wasn't that hard to figure out. <laughs> yeah. No, um, yeah, they, they did. They just threw me into it, which honestly, at these, all this time later, is surprising because, as I just said, there's a lot at stake. There's a lot to know. There's a lot of dangerous. And uh, they just, hey, go figure it out. But... Um, I wanted to make it happen, so I, I did. I worked my butt off to try and learn as much as I could, and and actually get good at it. So, um, yeah. But there was times. I mean, even I think I go into the Guns and Roses part, which is ladder in the book, and I'm still walking around going, "How can I look like I know what I'm doing?" Because I don't know what they want me to do right now. <laughs> so yeah, um, you would have had an expectation of what life was like as a roadie before you did it. Tell me about the reality of it when you started. Oh, that's fine. Because um, you, you, pro- you, pro- you might have thought that, well, you know, it's going to be, might be a little bit glamorous. I'm going to meet all these rock stars, hook up with all these women who are in the audience. Um, yeah, was, oh, was, yeah. it all, was it all different when you started? It was like, holy shit, this is a lot harder than I thought it would be. Way harder. Way, way, way harder. So when I first started, I had grown up across the street from a guy named Angelo. Angelo's a singer of a band called Fishbone. And so I wanted to work in music because I thought he was cooler than cool. And um, I always liked instruments. So when I got to do it, I, um, I I did. I thought it would be excess, extreme excess of everything. I thought I'd see drugs everywhere. And I thought that there'd be just naked women romping around always. <laughs> so it'd be like, you really need to move out of the way. I'm trying to hang this trust right now. And you, all these naked girls are in my way. They have to go. <laughs> but it wasn't so much um, that, at least all the time. But the truth is, is if you're in, I'll say, Somerset, Wisconsin, I don't know anybody there. And in the daytime, the venue is empty because, well, there's nobody there yet. So you you don't have any chicks to see or whatever. Um, you're doing your job. Well, when the show happens, then there's all these p- women about. But then you've got to work when the show's over because you got to take all that crap down and put it back into the cases to get to the show the next day. So at what point in all this is where you're supposed to find all this raucous behavior? Because they ain't there. <laughs> so the people who've been doing it for years... They've been through Somerset, Wisconsin a few times, and they might have somebody's phone number that they're friendly with. Then you give a ring and, you know, how you doing and stuff, and maybe you can go out on the day. Because when we have a day off, usually the day off is the day before the show because they want to make sure you're in the city. You actually made it. Um, and again, don't know anybody in a lot of these places, so you just kind of go to the mall. Mm. One of, yeah, one of the things that comes across in the book is you, you have to have a thick skin to be a roadie, and you have to be able to take a wind-up. Um, yeah. Did you ever see anyone not take a wind-up or someone actually get physically hurt because of one? Physically hurt? I don't know if physically actually hurt. You know, there's, there's this guy that shaved, like, his whole head and everything. They bound him up, and they put him in a bunk. So he couldn't move, and they shaved him like his whole head, everything. <laughs> Pretty mean. Yeah. Um, 
but I don't think anybody actually physically get hurt. It would obviously be crossing the line. Not that Brody cares. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I think they probably would. Cause I, I would assume a high end person would fire you. Okay. You know, and, and at the time I was touring, things were beginning to change a lot. When I first started touring, I could get people in the shows. I don't think you can anymore from what I'm being told. It's become much more of a business. It was back then, but I think increasingly more and more and more, it's just a straight corporate business. And so stuff like that is now a liability and they get rid of you because there's another guy they can hire and they don't want to have any issues. Um, did, did you ever, so, Joel, did you ever see someone get hired and after, oh, yeah. after, after a couple of days you look at them and say, nah, they're not going to last Oh, for sure. It's clear. Yeah. So there is, um, I say in there, there's a story. Some guy asks you to borrow money and cause we get paid cash for per diem. So the guy asks you to borrow money. That means you're getting fired because <laughs> the guy <laughs> don't ever have to pay you back. That means you are on your way out. And so I would know there would be the newbies and they'd be like, yeah, sure. Here's a hundred bucks. Great. I'll pay you next week. And I'm looking at the guy like, don't give him money. Don't give him money. <laughs> but I can't say anything. Cause then it's me losing out. So I just stay quiet, but you're looking at the guy like, Oh man. Mm. But yeah, you can tell. And I mean, a lot of it is, it's that guy just sitting on the stage with his hands in his pockets, staring and don't do that. You know, if you're not, if you got nothing to do, go on the bus, go lay in your bunk, you know, don't be seen doing nothing. Mm. Joel, what's the longest you've gone on the road without sleeping? Uh, Guns and Roses, Rock and Rio. So we had we had nowhere to sleep. I think that was about seventy hours, where we were in uh, Rio itself, and uh, we could catnap on the on the floor. But the floor was like uh, it was wood floor. It was uh, plywood. It was just plywood floors behind a deck, and it was so hot. So it was about seventy straight hours of just you know a, a little bit here and there, but not enough. Jesus. That was hard. That was really hard. Especially after flying all the way down there. Well, we were there for a while. We did rehearsals there for, I want to say, a couple weeks. The hard part is, it's not just staying awake. You got to be alert, and it's physical. It's physical work. So after 70-some-odd hours, you're pulling in a snake that's hundreds of feet long going out the front of house. It's heavy. It's filled with muck. I mean, you're doing it with other people, but Try doing physical excursion when when you've been awake that long. It's hard. Mm, mm. Now, one of the things that I, I was hoping you'd address in the book, and you actually did, was um, you guys go into a lot of these venues and they're unionized. They've got a lot of stagehands there that they just work there mm. and they're in the union. And I've always wondered the, that about the relationship between you guys going in with the people that work there that are going to help you. Was there ever any friction there? And you tell a story in the book about buying a case of beer and uh, getting them on side with you. Um, yeah. You must have seen the other it the other way, though, where guys go in and they treat the union people like shit. Yeah. So when you're tired, you're crotchety. And I don't know if it's necessarily intentional, but you're kind of a dick. So these union guys... They don't want to deal with you either. You know, they got to, they got to work too. Um, and there's a respect level thing that I think when you're traveling as much and you, I say, you, I don't know what state I'm in and I generally don't care. Um, you're, you're not the friendliest guy to be around. 
if you're friendly to those stagehands, they can be your best buddies. They're the ones doing all the work. Hmm. So I wasn't the best roadie. I never became very good at any of the jobs, but I could run a crew. I could run a crew really, really well. And I had a respect, genuine respect for everybody. And so it made it for a much more enjoyable experience too. If you go to these random cities and the guy, the stagehands know you're a good fella and you just, you know, how's your wife been? Oh man, you remember that I had a wife? I'd be like, yeah. yeah, I guess. Yeah. You told me you did. Yeah. <laughs> so it's just, it was, it was just that. And then I'm more of a people person too. So just talking to people is a little bit more fun for me. And so that, that probably had a little bit to do with it. Yeah, but some of the stagehands too. That you know, they've been there for years and years and years. That's not their first rodeo either, and they don't care about you and your crappy band either. Mm. <laughs> so, you know, sing your you, songs, get out. You ever, you ever seen fists thrown because of it? See fists thrown. Yeah, um, like an actual. You know, the union guys start fighting the, the guys in no. the band. Never. No, I don't think I ever had. I, I mean, there's been people yelling at each other. Sometimes the stagehands are pretty serious drug addicts. Okay. And so you've got issues. You know, I talk about in there, uh, I had a, it's true. I would send, we, got, we were doing a show and the show was finished. And this guy starts putting this, the pretty stuff back up on the stage. And we're like, this, the show's, the show's over, man. So the drum tech says to me, you know, go handle this crap. Because uh, at the time I was the stage manager, so I went over. And I was like, "How we doing, boss?" You know, and you don't know what he's gonna say. And the guy jumps up. He's clearly just so strung out, and he's like, "Is something wrong?" You know, you don't want to you don't want to cause a bigger issue. So I'd have him go look for a broom, and I said the broom uh, was very important to the band, and it's painted red, white, and blue. <laughs> and the guy'd be like, "Oh, okay." I'm like, "If you yeah, if you could look for it, that would be great." And then the guy's gone, and he's gone for. A long time, and then when they, you know, it would be. I, I say in there, it's a surprise, but they'd sometimes come back, and you'd be like, "Oh yeah, the broom guy. We found the broom. It's in the truck. Thanks, man. You're great." But it'd just be better to shoo them off. You have to be careful with the unions. If you piss them off, if you step on the wrong toes, you really hurt yourself. Yeah, yeah. Um, is there any venue that sticks out to you where the load in was? horrible because maybe the access was bad there was a lot of stairs it's an old venue so any any load in that sticks out for you uh the one in colorado what's it with the uh, rocks the red rocks yeah red rocks in colorado the load in is sucks you go the cases you go on and on and on to get to the gig very very far okay so um and then uh, that show in the beginning of the book, Rage Against the Machine, where I lost the road case in the yeah. beginning. Yeah. That was rough. That was far too. That was a long one. Yeah, yeah. Have you ever seen a headline band deliberately sabotage the performance of a band beneath them because they were afraid they were going to get upstaged? I've never seen that. No, no, oh. I never have. I mean, a lot of the times the last show of a tour, bands will play jokes on one another. And they'll play little, they'll do little stuff. But no, and keep in mind, usually it shows the opening act. One of the people from the opening acts are performing at least one song with the uh, headliner. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's more friendly than that usually. I I, uh, I talk about how Poison, the band Poison and Warrant, they um, 
it wasn't they, it was more, Brett wasn't on good terms with the uh, Janie. And so, but I never heard him say anything. They just, uh, they just didn't hang out. Okay. Um, I want to talk a little bit about Janie Lane because you don't really mention him that much in the book. And he had his issues on the road and of course with alcohol and substance abuse. Um, yeah. did you get to hang out with Janie at all on that tour? No, no, you- because because of what had happened, I guess, years previously with Brett and Janie, Warren had to be out of the venue. They had to be gone um, by the time Poison came up on the stage. So I never really talked to any of them. I start to friendly with, uh, get friendly with a guy named Jerry, who was the bass player. Yeah, and Jer- that was just because on our days off, he was always around. So uh, I got to talking to him, an incredibly nice fella. But Janie was never around. I mean, if he was in the bars, it would have been a few times only, and I don't remember. But I never became friendly with him. I never really got to know him very well. Oh, that's Jerry, Jerry Dixon, the bass player. Yeah, Jerry's a good guy, and we were pretty friendly for a little while, and uh, just very low-key, easy, nice fella. Good yeah. guy. You, you seem to... Hung quite a bit. You, Joel, you seem to spend a lot of time with C.C. DeVille. You got on very well with him. He's a character. He's really fun. I find him funny. And so I did. I spent a lot of time with him because I just, I really genuinely enjoyed his company. I tell people as far as music trivia knowledge and stuff, if you're going to have a bit of fun, the guy is an encyclopedia. It is absurd how much he knows about music. Mm. And uh, he's just, he, again, he's an easy guy to talk to. And he's kind of crazy. So some of the stuff he'll come out with is just so like, <laughs> entertaining. He's a good dude. Yeah, one one of the things that I liked in the book, it's only a small thing, but he was charging like five bucks for his autograph and <laughs> for extra yeah. money. And you look at a band oh. like Poison now, they'll charge like two or three grand to meet them. Whereas back then, there was no real meet and greets. Five bucks, man. It was, it was five dollars for a photo. I think five dollars for a handshake. Five dollars for something else. And he was all about it, man. He spent... He spent, I think, all day, if not a couple days, making these clapboards that would say five bucks to get a photo with me. And he would make you pay the five bucks. He was so into it. And um, it was entertaining to watch him go around the parking lot. Like, And he, he would be like, five dollars, five dollars. And then people are just walking by. I'm like, no. <laughs> Focus! Yeah, you hung around with Ricky as well and a little bit with Bobby. Um, did you get to hang around with Brett that much? No, Brett's really business, really, really, really business. And so I, I would assume that uh, he's doing a lot of interviews during the day. He was at radio stations or whatever. I don't know. He just wasn't around that often. Um, and so I spent much more time with the other guys. Also, a couple of those guys were on my bus, so you're living with them. So you yeah. spent a lot more time talking to them. So uh, Brett had his own bus. Okay. And uh, but it wasn't. It wasn't like it's not a pretentious thing. I don't think it sounded like that. But it's not. I think the guy's just. He's a business, a very, very business oriented person who's doing interviews and trying to make sure that this tour generates income and goes well and all that other stuff. The guy was immersed in making sure everything goes perfectly. He's a perfectionist. Yeah. Now, Joel, you said there that, you know, you like to have a, a, a crew that, that works and you get on with them and you like to talk to them. The relationship now between roadies and the band themselves, is there like an, an unwritten rule in the beginning that, 
you know, you can't talk to them that they have to approach you first that, you know, yeah. you're, there's nothing like that at all. I mean, it depends who you're working for. I stay in there with Bob Dylan. They asked us not to look at Bob Dylan. And everybody makes the big thing. Oh, like he didn't even want you to look at him. Well, there's a difference from just walking by and, oh, but you wouldn't. You just sit there gawking and stare at the guy while he's trying to eat his cheeseburger or something. So it's weird. So that's why I think the stories like Prince had the same, you you know, not allowed to look at Prince and whatnot. But I, I think it's just because they don't want you sitting there staring at them. Yeah. However... Um, I never had any of that. No, I, I was told to tread lightly around Axel because he he's moody. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> but that was the only rule I ever really remember getting. And he was okay. He was all right. Yeah. I got to ask you, Joel, t- tell me the Kevin DeBro story. Uh, so um, I'm backstage. We're eating. And Kevin was there. <clears throat> and I was just trying to chat to him, get to know him. I'm going to be toying with this guy for a while. And so I said to him, I'm like, yeah, I didn't know that Randy Rhodes started Quiet Riot. That's actually pretty cool. And he goes, yeah, man. Yeah, yeah. I'm like, yeah, that's cool. So anyway, he comes up on the stage that night and he, he's, he's opening it up and he goes, you know what's amazing, man? What's amazing? A guy that works for our band, man, works for us, didn't know that Randy Rhodes started this fucking band, man. And I'm looking like, is this asshole talking about me? I was just trying to be nice to you, you fucking long-haired, freaky <laughs> fucker. I was so mad. So mad. So at the end of the show, I told the stagehand guys, I'm like, yeah, tonight we don't do shit. Dude. We can watch these assholes load up their own crap. Well, Frankie uh, came over to me, and he, he's like, what's the wrong here? And I'm like, well, you can go ask Kevin to help you. He seems to know everything about everything. And they're like, oh, God, okay, that's the problem. <laughs> And they're like, well, we could use your help, and we'll, we're, we won't make fun of you. <laughs> so they uh, they were really cool, Rudy. They're really nice people, and, and so it was chilled out. And I never talked to Kevin again, and it wasn't a big deal. And I said during another interview, I did an interview for the Jewish Journal, and the guy's like, you know, the only Jew, like, in the whole book, you fought, you had a big fight with him. I'm like, oh, no, that's a terrible story. <laughs> I'm like, that's awful. I'm like, what was he, a religious guy? And he's like, I don't know. I'm like, well, you're supposed to know you're with the Jewish Journal, bro. But I think a lot of it could have been, you're trying to fire up the audience. You're trying to get them going. So maybe that was his way of getting people in the mix. And I mean, it wasn't like he gave me dirty looks and flicked me off or anything for the shows after. It was just, I just didn't talk to him again because I thought he was a dickhead. Mm. But it's not a prerequisite of being a roadie for a band that you have to like the band's music. You just have to do the job well. You have to do the job well. It makes it easier if you kind of are okay with their music, yeah. So it's tough to hear the same music every night for a band that you just hate listening to. Mm. So. I think a lot of the bands on that glam, slam, metal jam, you didn't really like their music more as much as you did like uh, Stone Temple Pilots. and I love um, Stone Temple Pilots, and it came as a surprise, to be really honest. I was excited to be touring with the Chili Peppers, not STP. I didn't know STP's music very well at all. It all, it's just watching them play. I was like, these guys are really good. I mean, this is like rock and roll. This is it. You got a few guys that each play their instrument. This is it. This is it. There's no crazy light show gimmicky crap. They're just good. And 
I watched them play a hundred times and I would happily have gone to see them again. Whereas the Chili Peppers, I started to get tired of hearing, you know, I'm like, God, if I have to hear fleecing, I'm a little pee one more time. But um, it's just every single day hearing the same thing again and again and again and again. Hmm. Uh, who do you like and who do you don't? And there's no, I think it's up to you what you, what you like. You know? Yeah. No, I, I've spoken to a few journalists and, and people that, you know, w- I did interviews and stuff with Scott Wyland and they were telling me stories about him being really difficult at times, yeah. that he was very moody, um, that he was notoriously late. Um, you, you, as a roadie, working around that, you must have been on edge a lot of the time, not knowing what Scott was going to turn up. No, I don't. Honestly, I don't remember him being late ever. Uh, all our shows went on on time. I don't, and as a stage manager, the timing is important. I don't remember that being an issue ever. And then Scott, I heard, I've heard so many stories, but none of them ever related to me. He treated me like a little brother and he was always cool to me. I never had anything. We'd have a little bit of rouse on occasion, small though. I talk about how I broke his sunglasses and Uh I thought he was going to kick my ass, but it wasn't like I was going to get fired or he was going to beat me up. It was more like, he was going to kick my ass. He loves these sunglasses. Maybe just, oh, I'm in so much trouble. More like your brother getting mad at you. <laughs> mm. So, no, Scott was easy, easy for me, super nice. But bear in mind, I'm a little kid. Yeah. I'm 20 years old. And they all, I think, noticed and respected that I worked my ass off. And I cared. And they all were always good to me. Everybody was cool. And I didn't have any issues. Axel's the famous one for showing up late, late, late. And I, I said, and you know, they, my answer to that was, if you don't like it, quit. I mean, you're getting paid to be there. You're not getting paid overtime. There's no such thing. So I don't care when the guy shows. I'm getting paid to be here anyway. Yeah. And that, that's how I looked at it. And people who'd go on and on about it said, go get another gig. Go work for another guy. Mm, mm. You seem that to get was a-, a lot worse in the earlier tours. Uh, I've heard some pretty heavy stuff that he just was really, really difficult. But uh, with the tour I did, he wasn't. He was. He was pretty easy. Mm. Well, the, the guitar player did something to you on stage that really set you off, though. Yeah. So again, I'm 20 years old, and he keeps telling me to come on the stage. His name's Dean, right? Yeah, so Dean. He keeps telling me, and I'm like looking at him because I know he's real drunk because I've been giving him wine. So he keeps motioning me for me to come over. So I go over there and he, he dips me like in a dance move. He dips me and he kisses me on the lips. And this is in front of like 30,000 people. And I'm, I'm livid. I'm so, so, so mad. And I didn't know what to say. And I, I I just looked at him. I'm like, I'm going to tell your wife. (laughs) I think the band, like Scott, I think stopped singing. They all just started laughing. Like, what the, what the fuck was that? That's the worst thing you could say to him. (laughs) <laughs> I'm going to tell on you. So for weeks, everybody gave me crap. I'm going to tell your wife. I'll be like, shut up. You know? And so I say in the book, the worst part was his lips were soft. <laughs> 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 it was awful, man. It was awful. I was really bad at him. There was like a, a solid week. I just, I just ignored him. I was so pissed off and he loved every second of it. He thought it was so, it was so funny. <laughs> <laughs> Um, you to tell your wife. Yeah. What a dumb thing to say. Yeah. <laughs> Joel, tell me the story with Limp Bizkit and Sharon Osbourne. So what happened was we were doing Ozfest, 
And it's funny, actually, a lot of people ask about Sharon, and I have a really high, I hold her in high regard. I think she's a really cool lady. I'm an Ozzy fan. Almost everybody is, but I, I love Ozzy. He's just so much fun. It's the same maybe as the C.C. DeVille type guy. The personality is just, you don't know what he's going to say. or He's fun to be around, and he's harmless. He's a good dude. So I think he's around because of her. So I like Sharon, and Sharon is no dummy. Very, very smart lady. Very... uh attention to detail again, and doesn't have time for BS. So anyhow, um, Fred Durst performed in the daylight, which which a lot of people don't. The, the shows are better at dark. I don't know. Maybe that's why, maybe that's why all musicians are vampires, but we, we like the nighttime. So he was lagging. He was lagging. We had, I, I overheard he was lagging in the parking lot. He was waiting in the parking lot for, for it to get dark. So he could then start. The problem is if he waits, you have curfew at the end of the night. So you lose time, which means the headlining act, in this case, it would have been Ozzy or Black Sabbath, I think, um, loses time because you got to finish at that 10 p.m. or whatever it is. So he comes out, he starts performing. Sure enough, it goes dark. And she says, uh, she comes over to the side of the stage and she's like, so how do uh, they just turn it all off? And it's like, excuse me? And she's like, the, everything, just turn the lights, just all the shit off. Just how do you turn it off? What's the button? Where's the button? <laughs> so I push her to the guy, unless she wants to turn the, the lights off. And he's like, sure, show. So he, we turn the distro off, we turn the lights off. And she goes, great, that's wonderful. Thank you so much. <laughs> and she just walks away. And he's just standing there with the mic in hand, and it's all off. And okay, you're done, dude. <laughs> that was it. So it was great. And she just stood there and whatever. Next, 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 next. <laughs> um, Joel, how much of the Limp Bizkit show was left to do? Not a lot. Okay. Not a lot. I think it kind of, you know, there's a lot of years, but if I remember like last song, you know, probably in the beginning of the last song type thing. Yeah, but he didn't do that again. <laughs> I don't know. With her around, he didn't. I know with her around, he didn't. It was fun to watch, though. He's good, too. He's cool. He's a. Uh, I talk about Polly Shore, the comedian, was yeah. on tour with them, just hanging out. You know, they were cool. They're they're fun to hang out with. <laughs> mm. but yeah, I bet he didn't do that again. Yeah, I, I can't let you go, Joel. I want to ask you about Axl Rose. Um, sure. You said in the book that they were Guns N' Roses were probably your favorite band. And, yeah, I'm a huge fan. And your your boss Caesar said to you when he told you we were getting the Axl Rose, the Guns N' Roses gig that. He said, Axel has a lot of problems, okay? Now, you probably would have already known that. Um, when you actually got to work for the guy, um, how different was it than what you expected? Like, were you expecting it to be a complete train wreck? You were going to be there all day. He wouldn't show up, and he was going to be moody. And uh, Can I you remember? I was so nervous. I don't know if I knew what to expect. I was so, so nervous. I mean... Uh, like, was he going to walk into the studio doing the snake dance? <laughs> 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 you know? I didn't know. I just, I just was hoping that nothing changed in the cosmos that I wouldn't actually get to meet the guy and watch him. I was just a, a really big fan and incredibly nervous. And I think my boss was real nervous too, that I would not be professional when this was a big gig. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, he was much more human. I think when I first met him, he, he comes into the studio and he just was just hanging out, 
talking to some of the crew that he had known from previous tours. And he was just more of a person than I thought. I, I, I thought he would be, I don't want to say larger than life because um, there's no negative connotation to him just being a regular guy. But he was just normal. He was just talking. And then when he got up and performed, I'm like, you are so awesome. I was so excited to just watch this guy uh, sing a song that I'd grown up loving so much. <laughs> and I felt so lucky that, to be sitting there. Yeah. And I, I, I just, I still think they're great. I love Guns N' Roses, man. I just love it. <laughs> yeah. Um, the thing that comes across in the book is how professional the band were that he had with him. Um, oh, they were amazing. Now, they hired the best guys in the world. Yeah, now, a lot of the guys, pe- people probably won't know if you brought up the name Guns N' Roses, they'd all think, you know, it's Duff, Slash, Izzy, and Steven, and maybe Matt Sorum, but the band he had then, you talk about them rehearsing, and they'd rehearse for hours and hours and hours to get everything absolutely perfect. Yeah. Yeah, well, it was A, that's what they're hired to do, but B... I don't know, man. They all knew it anyway. I you know, I talk about that the drummer at the time was Brain. This guy can he is good. I mean he played with Primus. I mean this guy is amazing. They know how to play this music. But yeah. that was the job, so every night they practice it again and again and again and again. But it's cool to watch these guys that are genuinely the top one percent performers in the world. Um, every night, you know, I, I spent, I spent some time at Buckethead watching him and watching him noodle on a guitar is an awesome thing to see. He's just so diverse and what he just chooses to just mess around with all the time. Hmm. And you do bring up the entourage that Axel had with him. He, he always comes across to me as a guy that nobody says no, no to him. You know, he'd fire you. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, you were worried. Well, about I don't know. He's pretty tough too. I think. I, yeah. You, yeah. Br- you bring up the story in the book about him calling the studio. Yeah. So I'm in the studio, and it's real loud. I can't hear, and I don't even know why I picked up the phone. I have no idea. And so I pick it up, and there's some guy I can't hear him, and he wants to talk to one of the roadies. Eventually, I get it, and the other roadie's already on the phone. So they come in. They're like, "What the hell, dude?" I'm like, yeah, sorry, I couldn't hear him. Like, what was Axel? And he just fired you. Get the fuck out of here. You're fired. I'm like, oh, man. <laughs> like, I shouldn't have picked up the phone. So my boss is like, just go home for the day. You come back tomorrow. Nobody will even remember who the hell you are. Just come back tomorrow. Is that true, Joel, that he actually hired a guy just to make tea? <laughs> it was the, yeah, the tea-making guy. Yeah, I mean, it's in my notes. It was there. This guy who was supposed to make the tea. I, I remember the fella, and he was like a, a little heavy. I don't know. He, he was a shortest guy with glasses, and his job was to make the tea. But what's funny is that he just he did a no-show. He didn't get on the airplane to go to Rio for two weeks, and all you got to do is make tea, and you miss your airplane? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, boy, dude, your resume must be amazing, buddy. I mean, <laughs> what the hell? So he, uh, yeah, there was the tea dude. There was the tea dude. Yeah, and the tea thing was funny online. Yeah, everybody went on the thing. And what kind of tea does Axel drink? And I'm like, I don't know, guys. I don't know. But you know, for the title of the book, the title of my book was Axel said I made a great cup of tea. That was the title. And my friend and I, we thought it was real funny. And I was talking to Dizzy Reed, and and uh, I wanted to get a quote from Diz for the book. 
And he he's like, so you, you you're calling your book what? And I told him, and he goes, you couldn't come up with a better title than that. I'm like, well, you know, I didn't have that many conversations with Axel. We only had a few. And so one of them was like, um, hey, dude, uh, can you make me some tea? And I said, yeah, man. And, and Dizzy's like, wow, that's, that's pretty heavy. I'm like, oh, I think that was one of them. Because then their second conversation was like, oh, it was a thanks for the tea. That was great. Because that's the same conversation, Bill. <laughs> I'm like, well... It was over like a period of time. <laughs> I loved it. It was great. Disney was like, you got to come up with a better title. That's a terrible title. <laughs> um, so. One of the characters in the book, and I have to ask you about him, he's towards the end of the book. And I, I think in a, in a lot of ways, this sums up how insane road life can be and what it can do to your psyche. Tell me about Tumbleweed. Tumbleweed. So... Um, you've got time with nothing to do, and I don't know how many of the roadie people are the intelligentsia of society, so I stupid stuff. But we, um, one of the guys, he started creating this character, and it was based off of the characters kind of in Raising Arizona, and he created this character called Tumbleweed, because he got those fake teeth, like a truck stop. So he'd put in the fake teeth, he'd put in the cigar, and then he'd usually take all his clothes off, but his shoes, and he'd go out. So we'd have tumbleweed. So tumbleweed, there's one thing, and we go into this truck stop, and we need to get some. He must get the whole the whole front of it of this truck stop is window washing fluid. There's hundreds and hundreds of gallons of it in the in the opening. So he walks in. Tumble the character tumbleweed. He walks in. He goes, "You got any window washing fluid?" You know, and I'm all looking at him. Bear in mind, we're all bottles of alcohol deep. We've been drinking all day. So no matter what anybody does, it's really funny because we're idiots. So um, the guy looks at him and the guy pulls out a bottle of window washing fluid from under the counter. <laughs> like, Good God. I mean, how much do you have? <laughs> and so Tumbleweed falls out of character and he laughs and he's like, okay, man. And he pays him. And then he goes out to wash the windows of the bus, which, by the way, is not a roadie job. It's usually the, the driver does it. And he's naked, so he's got his balls flat, hitting the <laughs> windshield. And this poor driver was not like your typical driver. He was kind of like a, a shirt and tie, like nice type fella. He had pictures of his kids up on the, you know, in the bus there and stuff. And he's just looking horrified. <laughs> this naked dude is washing the uh, window of his bus. And then he comes back in and he goes, here, I'll leave this with you just in case you guys run out of more fluid. And I'm just like, oh, geez, just stupid, <laughs> stupid stuff. Yeah, <laughs> but yeah. The rest of us are in there buying like porn magazines, alcohol, chips. <laughs> it must, you mustn't like when the guy was doing the tumbleweed character, you, you wouldn't know when he was going to do it. Did he have to have X amount of alcohol in him to do it? Well, usually did anyway. Didn't know what he was going to do for sure, but I did know that he'd love to try and like grab and hold me, and he's naked. So as soon as like tumbleweed would be like, oh yeah, because of this like southern drawl thing, I'd be like, oh shit, and I'd have to be on it because I didn't want him to grab me naked. <laughs> did, were the band ever around when they saw this tumbleweed? Um, so I did a couple tours with that fella. 
And I want to say that on STP, the band were all well aware of Tumbleweed, yeah. <laughs> but on the Cranberries, no. I don't think any of the guys ever had the opportunity to see Tumbleweed. Yeah, yeah. But it was funny. I mean, the guy was actually pretty amusing. He, he's a funny fella, the roadie, I mean. Yeah, but that, that sort of shit, it gets you arrested, and then you're, you're, you can't do the tour. You know, you're fucked. He was amazing, yeah. Well, yeah, like we go into McDonald's, you know, he's got no shirt on or whatever. The, the guy was just getting so, so pissed off, you got to get out of here. But I don't know, it was just like no fear. I don't know, I don't know. Yeah. But, yeah. yeah. When, you were, when you were finished the book, or writing the book, I'll just finish up on this, Joel. Um, sure. Did you miss being a roadie when you were doing it? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Okay. But you know, you think you're, you're it's always the, you think of the romance of things and how great everything was. You you don't necessarily remember. It was lonely too. There were some I'm glad I, I moved on to other ventures. I'm happy with how things have gone. But hell, man, that's a cool job for a kid. <laughs> a really cool one. And then I feel so lucky I got to tour with some bands that I really liked a lot cuz I wouldn't necessarily uh, could have got those gigs. I, I could have worked for other bands. I didn't think were as cool. Yeah, yeah. So it was yeah. a really great way to grow up, and um, I, I think that it, it was important to actually get a little bit of toughening up, which I think that that they did. You, it, you, they taught me that. You do admit, Joel, in the end of the book, that you definitely had an alcohol problem, though. Um. Oh yeah. Yeah. I was well. I mean, I don't talk about it at all. But I years later, I was having liver issues. I was going through liver failure. I, I, went, I went there and the doctor and they do the test and they're like, okay, you got to come back. So when you come back a bit later, they give you weeks, you go do a, what is it? A ultrasound. So I'm sitting there in the lobby of the hospital and it's all these pregnant ladies and me. <laughs> <laughs> and so I go in and I remember she was married. This doctor lady was gorgeous, right? And she's married. I'm like, so, you know, how you doing? And she goes, so you're in here because you have an alcohol problem? Oh, we're going to start with that. <laughs> but, um, yeah, so I actually quit drinking for, oh, I don't remember, probably like a year. I didn't really drink. And now I'm, I'm what I think anybody would consider a social drinker. I have a beer or two, and that's about it. Mm. Do you, I know this year you couldn't go to many shows, but are you a guy that has gone to a lot of shows over the years, even after you stopped being a roadie? I'm terrible. I don't like to go. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I don't like to go. My girlfriend, in 10 years or 9 years now, she got me to go to uh, Neil Diamond, was it? And he was great, by the way. He was real good. But for the most part, I, I don't like to go to live shows. Okay, okay. Well, Joel, uh, tell, tell everyone where they can get a copy of the book. Amazon. The big beast of Amazon. Okay, and when do you think the audio book will be out there? Oh, it's a touchy subject, my friend. <laughs> <laughs> I have to ask. <laughs> yeah, it's that, that book is tough, man. So I think I'm done recording it, and um, I've got I've got a guy actually today who's going to start weaving in a song I wrote with Dizzy. Uh, I actually wrote the song about ten years ago with him, and we just never uh, I don't we never finished up. So I'm going to weave that in and out the book. Okay. And so I'll know better, but honestly, I think the I think the audio book will be done in the next like two weeks. Okay, you've stayed friendly then with some of the musicians that you toured with. Yeah, so Dizzy, I made a film years later uh, called The Still Life, and Dizzy did all the music with me uh, for for the most part. 
um, I had a lot. Of, I had Adrian from No Doubt and Darius Rucker and uh, Jonathan from Corn as the liquor store clerk and Josh Todd from Buck Cherry, the drunk dude in the bar. And like I've had a bunch of music buddies in it, and it was fun. And Dizzy did the score with Snake from Skid Row a little bit. Nice. And so Dizzy and I stayed friendly always since since then. Nice, nice. Well, Joel, I'm going to leave you get back to work. It's been a pleasure talking Cheers. to you. The book is really Can good. You, pardon? The book, the book is really good. I really enjoyed it. I just wanted to hear you say it again. <laughs> uh, well, stay in touch, man. It's been really fun chatting with you, and I appreciate the opportunity. No problem, Joel. Have a good rest of the day. Cheers, man. All right. Cheers. Bye. All right, there you go. There is Richie's chat with author and former roadie Joel Miller. Go out and pick yourself up a copy of his book, Memoirs of a Roadie, and that's available in you know, book form. And I guess they also have that on Kindle. And right before mixing this thing as well, I did take a check and see whether or not the audio book was done yet, but I don't see that available. But anyways, you can get it, like I said, as an ebook or as a print book. So go pick yourself up a copy of that one. And speaking of picking something up, those of you who have not picked up Bob Nalbandian's latest documentary, Bay Area Godfathers Part 1. Definitely want to go and do that because I have word from Bob himself that uh, Bay Area Godfathers Part 2 is heading our way very, very soon. The word I got from Bob is that that will be available in physical format as well as streaming on March 23rd. So definitely looking forward to that because part one was an awesome, awesome documentary. And if you want, you can head back to episode 476 and actually hear a chat I did with Bob all about part one. That'll give you the whole lay of the land for uh, that part of the documentary. And I've just been jonesing to see some more of that. So again, if you haven't gone and taken a look at part one, I think it's still available streaming, but you can also get it as a, as a DVD, and then you will be all queued up and ready to dive into part two. And not that necessarily you need to see part one to get into part two, because everything that Bob makes is good stuff. But really, you got to be completist and, and do it one into two, get the whole thing going. But again, the latest Inside Metal documentary, Bay Area Godfathers Part Two, available for your little metal ear holes and eye holes on March 23rd. Hopefully that won't get delayed. Otherwise, I'm going to go into some kind of major metal depression. And while you're waiting for that, if you haven't, uh, you know, partake of any of the other Inside Metal documentaries that are out there, I know that uh, a lot of them are streaming, but also you can go get yourself copies of those ones. I, uh, I actually have bought every single damn one of them, and they're all great. Okay, well, I am not sure what is on deck for next week. Uh, those of you who listened to last week's episode know that we have a couple of things recorded and on deck. Just haven't really narrowed down if we're going to do a doubleheader two weeks worth of Johnny D or get into the author of uh, Rusted Metal. And also, Richie's been out there doing some other interviews as well. Just did a great one with Ricky Warwick. That actually might be next week's episode. We'll have to see. But uh, right now, still all up in the air. A little bit too early to tell. But if you follow us on Twitter, then you are usually the first ones to know. Usually by the weekend prior or so, I put it up there. What is going to be on deck for the following week? But 
for this week. That's it. There ain't no more. Stick a fork in it. This puppy is indeed well and done. So for Richie, myself, and everybody else here at Focus on Metal, as always, have yourselves a great metal week. Be safe out there. And until we talk to you again next week, make sure you remember to Focus on Metal. Everything else is insignificant. You're still here? It's over. Go home.